We're going to be looking at chapter 9 this morning. It's found on page 1664 of the Blue Pew Bible that you have there. In his book, Awe, pastor and counselor Paul Tripp, some of you might know that name, writes about a time when he took his son to D.C. and he took him to the National Galleries. He writes this in the book, As we made our approach, I was so excited about what we were about to see. He was, my son was decidedly unexcited. But I knew that once inside, his mind would be blown and he would thank me for what I had done for him that day. As it turned out, his mind wasn't blown. It wasn't even activated. I saw things of such stunning beauty that brought me to the edge of tears. He yawned and moaned and complained his way room after room. With every new gallery, I was enthralled, but each time we walked into a new space, he begged us to leave. He stood in the middle of wonders, but was bored out of his mind. He was surrounded by glory, but he saw none of it. His eyes worked well, but his heart was stone. He saw everything but he saw nothing. Paul Tripp's son was what I'm terming as blind-sighted. He was among beauty, but he didn't appreciate it. He was in the midst of greatness, and he was incredibly bored. He was able to see, but he wasn't able to see what he saw. This is... The half, this is half of the spiritual lesson that we're going to be exploring today in God's Word in chapter 9. That many times people think they can see are actually blind. And the people that are blind can actually see. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 9. God's Word says, And as he, Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when one No one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with his saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went ahead and washed and came home, seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. 
How then were your eyes opened, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. I, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been healed, been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied. I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened, the man said. He's a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one who they say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he is our son, the parents at. We know he is our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already. And you did not listen. Why? Do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to godly, a godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this, they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Here we're introduced to a man that's born blind. That is his condition. And that's the first point of the sermon. The condition of this man. Jesus has miraculously slipped away. That's when we pick up the story in verse 1 of chapter 9. Remember, they wanted to seize him. They wanted to stone him and seize him for claiming to be God. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am, using that powerful allusion to Exodus 3, the name of God. And perhaps as he's leaving the temple, he notices this man sitting there begging. Maybe he's seen him before as he has come to the temple. 
In fact, this man, we're told, is blind from birth. The Word of God gives us a significant detail there in verse 1, blind from birth, meaning this man has never, ever seen. Now, it's an important detail that John gives us here because as we know, as we remember, these seven miracles that John is telling us about are put there not to wow us, not put there so that we might seek miraculous things in our own life, although God sometimes does do those things. He's telling us about these seven particular miracles that Jesus does because in chapter 20, verse 31, he tells us, I have a purpose for these miracles. They're so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing in Jesus, you might have eternal life. So these miracles are, are physical, but they also have a spiritual light put on them. And I think it's important that he tells us that, that this man was born blind, blind from birth, never seeing from birth, because it parallels the condition of each and every person on earth. We're born spiritually blind. Nobody comes out of their mother's womb knowing Jesus. Nobody is born a believer in Jesus. Nobody grows up and naturally looks at Jesus and goes, Oh, my Savior whom I desperately need. Nobody's heart does that. And listen, kids, if you're sitting here and listening to this, If you're brought up in a Christian household, you have to realize this applies to you. Because you were born in a Christian home with Christian parents doesn't make you a Christian. Because nobody is born a Christian. You're still blind. And at some point, kids you are going to have to decide to follow Jesus for yourself. Your parents don't make you Christians. Jesus does. We're all born spiritually blind. And scripture actually goes further. It says that we're just not born blind and kind of neutral towards Jesus. Romans 8, 7 says the mind governed by the flesh is hostile towards Jesus. And Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 says that we were alienated from God and enemies of God. That's how we're naturally born. We're born running in the opposite direction when Jesus comes. And that is our experience when we try to share Christ with someone, isn't it? If you've ever shared the gospel with somebody, you know that this is true. What type of reaction do you get 92 times out of 100? Oh, that's the best news I've ever heard. Thank you so much for telling me that. Oh, that is what I've been missing my whole life. You are an angel to be bringing this to me. Come over, have a, have a barbecue tonight. Oh. By God's grace, sometimes when you share... 
someone's heart is melted. But most of the time, what's the reaction you get? How, how dare you think that I need saving? Who died and made you God? How do you claim to have the exclusive truth? Boy, that is pretty, that's a big assumption on your part. How, how dare you say that I need forgiveness? Now, they don't say those words exactly. Sometimes they do. But that's what's coming out when you feel that rebuff, isn't it? How can you tell me that I need forgiveness? But that is the essential claim that the gospel puts on each and every life, isn't it? You're in desperate, desperate need of forgiveness. That's what you're telling people. And people's reaction is hostile, and that's the reaction of a person that is blind. That's a blind person's reaction. The fact of the matter is, spiritually, we're all born like this man, blind and hostile to the fact that we need help. Don't we even hate that four-letter word? That's perfect four-letter word that we hate, don't we? You need help. So Jesus, realizing that he has an opportunity to teach this principle, he must have stopped. And in verse 2, we see that the, the disciples maybe see his pause in front of this man, and they take that opportunity to ask a question. In verse 2, they say, Rabbi, who sinned that this man is born blind? He or his parents, who sinned? That is the question that they ask him. Okay, one of the greatest questions of the Christian faith, isn't it? What about suffering? What about suffering? How can a, how can a good, all-powerful God allow such terrible suffering? But here the disciples assume a very common fallacy at that time especially. At that time... There was a common belief that sin caused the physical distortions that were present in the community. Sin being exclusively behind that suffering. In other words, the physical distortion is a manifestation of a spiritual distortion. And look at what Jesus answered. He says, neither. Neither this man nor his parents have sinned. While Jesus quickly dismisses the assumption that sin causes suffering, we have to be quick and balanced here to realize that sometimes sin does cause suffering, right? I mean, you don't have to look very far in Scripture to see that. I mean, David's life, that's one of the great examples that is laid bare in Scripture. Because of his adultery, a child's death occurred. Because of his, of his uh, apparently poor fathering, he had a tumultuous monarchy with Absalom. Because of his pride in counting the men, getting ready to expand Israel's border and become an international powerhouse in Second Samuel, because he counted the army, there was a plague that wiped out 70,000 people. 
So yeah, suffering does, uh, sin does cause suffering. In fact, the Bible tells us that the suffering is caused for multiple reasons. Sometimes suffering is is put in our lives to refine us. That's what James chapter 1 teaches us. Consider pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Because of those trials, is going to develop perseverance. It's going to develop maturity so that you're complete, not lacking anything. Suffering has a purpose in your life. Suffering is also present in the lives because of other people's actions. Think about that. Sometimes you and I suffer because of what someone else has done. Matthew 5.45 tells us that rain falls on the just and unjust alike. Just as good happens to people, so too suffering. I guess the ultimate example that we can come to here in this space on this day is the suffering of Jesus Christ. It was no fault of his own. He was pure and innocent and perfect, yet he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. No fault of his own, but he suffered because of our sin. Perfect example. But here we're given probably the most difficult and most uncomfortable answer. Did you pick up on it? Neither he nor his parents have sinned, but this blindness happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Okay, listen closely. What scripture is telling us here, as far as I can delineate, is that this man's suffering for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we don't know how old he is, this person's suffering was allowed by God so that God might use it for his purposes, for his glory, to show who he is in that man's suffering. How do you feel about that? How does that strike you? How does that sit with you? I think there are basically two reactions you can have to that. Probably in between there are many other heart positions, but there's two basic reactions. That of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in the Star Tribune gave an interview in June of 1997 and told how, as a Christian, at age 71, she has changed her mind and wants to tell the world that a good God who rules the world and answers prayers is a bunch of bull. She said, and I quote, How can a good God give leukemia to six babies in, Ohio, in Iowa today, take out 10,000 folks in Bangladesh in a typhoon, and raise the rate of prostate cancer in Australia 11%? Meanwhile, as they ask God so nicely, dissolve a tum- brain tumor in a, of a woman in London, reroute an 83 earthquake from the Azores and give a contestant in Sweden the Miss Universe title. She concludes by saying, God, good, infinite, sounds more like a bean counter from hell. 
That's how your heart can go. God using this man's suffering for his glory, for his purposes, allowing 20, 30, 40, 50 years of suffering. How? That's Elizabeth's reaction. Is that where your heart lands when you hear that? But there's another reaction. Michael Horton, the professor of theology at Westminster Seminary in California, commenting on chapter 9, says this, However difficult it may be to swallow, there's something bigger than you and your personal happiness. And that is God and his purposes. Have you ever thought about that? That what you are going through might possibly be for the purpose of bringing God glory? of bringing God to the forefront, of shining a spotlight on God, for people not to see you, but to see God in you. Not to look at you, but to see Christ in you. I was actually uh, counseling somebody recently who's going through an intense period of suffering, and I asked them what they expected of God for their life. I said, what do you expect God to do in your life? And I put it like this. I said, fill in the blank. I expect God to blank. I said, what what do you put in there? Well, I expect God to give me a comfortable life. Or perhaps another answer would be, I expect God to give me a happy marriage. Or perhaps some of you are saying, I expect God to give me a relatively stress-free retirement. Or I expect God to fill up my oil tank. Or I expect God to give me good grades. Perhaps some of you teenagers here are saying, I expect God to give me a boyfriend or girlfriend. Or perhaps some of you are saying, I expect God to give me a healthy body. Or I expect God to take away this depression. Or I expect God to give me a happy life, whatever that means. Fill in the blank. Whatever you fill in that blank with, if God does not give it to you, it will cause you to suffer. Because it's taken away. That's the expectation. And the temptation, when that is taken away, when that is put in jeopardy, is for your heart to be pulled towards Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's understanding. How could God do that? He must be a bean counter from hell. Allow me to suggest you fill in the blanket with a, a different thing. I expect God to make me more like Christ. If that is truly in the blank, I mean really in the blank, heart and head level for you, if you believe that when you say that, and the degree to which you believe that, you are free to bring God glory 
in whatever life throws at you. Because the purpose is to glorify God, for people to see God manifest in you. And when you say, I expect God to make me more like Christ, whatever happens in your life, you're able, you're, you're more mature, more complete, you're not lacking as much because you're able to say, in this, God will be glorified. You're really able to understand Romans 8.28, aren't you? You're able to live that. Like you weren't able to live that before, that all things God in God works for those for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Everything's working towards good. What's the good? That I, whatever is going on in my heart, that, that will be made more like Christ. See, it's all about the glory of God, guys. It really is. It's not about your glory. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which we talked about in Sunday school this morning, is actually true. What is your chief end? What is your purpose here on life? What is it? It truly is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the truth. And it challenges us to think a layer deeper, doesn't it? It challenges us. We're fine with God glorifying himself in our successes, but are we really fine with him glorifying himself in our failures? You know, we're really fine with God glorifying himself when you see me as strong, but are you really fine with God glorifying himself when you're seen as weak? We're fine with God glorifying himself when we do good deeds. Are we equally as fine when God exposes our sin? We're fine with God glorifying himself in my happy life, but what about your suffering? What are you filling in the blank with? Here's the wake-up question that Jesus answer poses to us what if my life is not about me and my happiness what if my life is about him and his glory that's the difficult question guys what if 2 Corinthians 6 19 is really true I'm really not my own I've really, really actually been bought with a price. And I really should be honoring God with my body. I can tell you one effect it would have. It would be to free us to live bold lives. It would free us. But first we need to be freed, and that's what we see next in the context is the cure. That's what Jesus brings. If you look at verses 6 and 7, that's when we see him spitting on the ground and making mud and going and putting it on this, this blind man's eyes and telling him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And he does so. And he's, he sees again. Jesus had just said, I am the light of the world. And in case we miss it again, he says it here. 
in verse uh, 5. He is actually bringing spiritual light to people that are dark. He is fulfilling that. For those in the dark, Jesus is going to bring light. For those who are blind, he's going to bring sight. Many people get caught up in the detail of him doing this. The method, why spit on the ground? Or, the, or as we talked about in chapter 8, why, what is he writing in the ground? Or even in chapter 1, you know, why six stone pillars, uh, uh, stone jars of water to turn to wine? We get caught up in those details when really what we should just be seeing is Jesus bringing joy back to that wedding. Jesus bringing complete forgiveness to that woman. And here, Jesus bringing sight to where there was total, utter darkness. Jesus is the cure for spiritual blindness. That is what Jesus does to you and me. He gives us sight. 2 Corinthians 3.16 says, Whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That's what Jesus is doing to this blind man. He's taking the veil away. That's what he does to you and I. He takes the veil away. And the question that needs to be asked here, as it does whenever the gospel is preached, is can you, sitting in that pew, say the veil has been taken away? I now have sight where I was blind. I understand that Jesus is my Savior. That's the question. And in case you don't know how to navigate that, let's go into the, the ophthalmologist uh, uh, room for a second and take a quick eye test. I'll give you a quick eye test to know whether you, you, the veil has been taken away. Three questions. Do you believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be? Do you believe that Jesus did what he said he did? And third... Do you understand your desperate need? First, do you understand, do you believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be? This is, what, this is why this comes on the heels of chapter 8 where he says, I am the light of the world. Do you believe that Jesus is God? That's what last week's sermon was really struggling through. That's the first thing you have to come to grips with. As I said last week, if that isn't true, it all falls apart. Second question, do you believe that he did what he claimed he did? Do you believe he lived a sinless life, that he actually didn't sin in word, thought, or deed? Do you believe that, that as an innocent person, he went and he sacrificed himself for your sin and for my sin? That he actually absorbed sin and took the punishment for it? and rose three days later to conquer, as the Bible puts it, Satan's sin and death. Do you believe those two? And thirdly, do you understand that you're in desperate need of forgiveness? That's the question. That is the question. Because, and listen to this, hear this, you can believe the first two and still not be a Christian. You can believe the first two and not have eternal life. You can say yes to the first two questions and still live a very self-centered life, being self-satisfied 
that you have this intellectual truth and not be saved. You can say yes to the first two questions and still think that you don't need massive forgiveness. What Jesus is saying in the end of this miracle is you can think you have sight and still be blind. Look with me at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, the blind man, and went and found him. And he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The blind man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. (laughs) Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him saying this and asked, what? Are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. Here we have finally the counterintuitiveness of the gospel. The counterintuitive gospel. We see the blind man being saved, and we see the Pharisees being told that they are blind. Let me put it another way. We see a man who acknowledges that he is blind and needs help receiving sight. And at the same time, we have the contrast there of the Pharisees who claim to have sight. And what does Jesus say about them? You're blind. Being told that they're still spiritually lost. Being told that their sin, their guilt, their condemnation remains. You see, they know the answers to the two eyesight, first two eyesight questions. They know those answers, but they refuse to acknowledge the third, their desperate need, their massive need to be forgiven. They're like Paul Tripp's son in the art gallery who's there in front of Jesus, this, this amazing greatness of God incarnate, and they can't even see it. They're bored with it. They're blind to it. That's the counterintuitiveness of the gospel. In order that your eyes may be opened... You have to admit that you cannot see. In order for you to have spiritual eyesight, you have to be able to proclaim your blindness. That's the lesson of salvation in Jesus, isn't it? Humble desperation. You have to admit that you're blind. You have to say, like this this man in, in, in John 9, you know, I see is not part of your vocabulary. It was never part of his vocabulary. He would never say, I see, because he knew he was blind. You have to be willing to admit that you're blind, that you're in desperate need of eyesight. You're in desperate need of forgiveness. Unless you can answer that third question with, oh, I need that. 
you'll never see. That's what John Newton's hymn expresses so well. That's why I picked it to, to sing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He wrote that because he wants to relive that. He wants to remind himself how blind he was. I was a wretch. Was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. He's picking this imagery right out of John 9. You see, the only way to have sight is to proclaim I'm blind. The only way to have salvation is to proclaim I need forgiveness on a massive scale. But before we leave, there's a scary application for believers in this room here. Kent Hughes wrote the following. He says, The self-satisfied attitude of I see is deadly for the Christian. We comfort ourselves with our ability to see sin in the world, to see moral problems, to see ethical answers. We focus on what we think we see, but we never really look into our own hearts. It's so easy for us to focus on our piety and the changes in our habits and speech. But while we congratulate ourselves, we allow evil to spread unrestricted in our souls. Understand, I am blind is not just how you enter the kingdom of God. It's how you traverse the ground between here and glory. You're continually saying, I'm still blind in these areas. I still need you to open my eyes in these areas. The ground of spiritual growth is the awareness of how dark our hearts are and how desperately we still need Christ. Charles Spurgeon, for you Baptists, said this, it is not our littleness that hinders Christ, it is our bigness. It is not our weakness that hinders Christ, but our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ, but our supposed light that holds his hand back. Dear believer, the degree to which you realize you still have blindness in your life is the degree to which you will become more like Christ. The degree that you allow others to assert blindness in your life is the degree to which you will grow. Let me give you an example from a Scottish preacher that lived a hundred years ago named Alexander White, a wonderful man of God who preached for many, many years in Scotland. He was in his study one day when a friend came in and told him that an evangelist had come into Edinburgh, Scotland, and had been telling people that local pastors were not Christians. And when he got to the name of one of his friends, Hood Wilson, Alexander White popped out of his chair and began railing against this evangelist. How dare he say that about Hood White's friend continued, and that's not all. He said that you're not a convert either. At that, White stopped short, sat back down into his chair, and put his face in his hands. After a few moments, he said, leave me. 
I must examine my heart. Willingness to be open to your own blindness. And we're about to go into the Lord's table. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, use that time as a point where you can examine yourself. He goes on to say, at the end of the letter, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Alexander White was willing to reflect on that. That's massive desperation for Christ. That's a willingness to say, everything's on the table. And I don't want to, I want you to get doubt about your salvation here. The point of the matter is that as you walk through and toward glory, you have to be willing to say, I might have some big blind spots here. I am blind in areas. Because Jesus came into the world so that the blind will see. And that those who claim to have sight, to have that hubris pride to say, no, don't need it. They will remain blind. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you will apply it to our lives. Spirit, nudge us closer to the perfection that we see in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.